0: welcome to Halfway history i'm jonathan
1: and i'm kylie
0: and this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week but a long time ago
1: pretty long ago well mm,
0: yeah mine is still in the vein of the last few episodes we've done
1: oh i just looked back at my date mine is not long ago <laughs> Oh,
0: <laughs> continuing the trend of not understanding time this is great for historians
1: I completely forgot when mine was and just didn't look at my paper until after I said that and then went, ha ha ha. ha. Oops, I lied.
0: <laughs> uh huh. Do we have any updates? I do not. I don't either.
1: Woo, let's dive on in then. Heck
0: yeah. When is your date?
1: 1934.
0: Mine is 1936. You get to go first. Oh.
1: <laughs> Alrighty. So this week, I wanted to get back into the was it real or not theme. Mm. <laughs> On February 22nd, 1934, and I'm going to butcher these French names, um, Georges-Andre Malraux and Edouard um, Cornelian. I'm going with Cornelian. There's a G in there, but I'm not sure how to pronounce
0: that. Cornelian, maybe?
1: Maybe. And uh, uh, it's Cornelian Molinier set out to find the lost capital of the Queen of Sheba that was mentioned in the Old Testament.
0: Oh, yeah. exciting.
1: Yeah. For reference, uh, Malraux was a French novelist, art theorist, and served as the Minister of Information from 1945 to 1946. And he was France's first Minister of Cultural Affairs from 1959 to 1969 under President Charles de Gaulle. So he was like a fairly influential person, I guess. Um, Molinier was an aviator and member of the French resistance and a member of the French government during the French Fourth Republic, which lasted from 1946 to 1958. France had many republics. <laughs> um, and then in in the 1930s and 40s, he was a movie producer.
0: Interesting. So, yeah, of it's a
1: really yeah, it's, it's a very interesting. So he's a French resistance fighter and a movie producer <laughs> and a pilot. So sure. Jack of all trades. Go I suppose. for it. Yep. So a very interesting duo um, that set out on, on this uh, little adventure. So the start of their search was highly publicized, possibly because of what they were looking for, a.k.a. the lost queen of Sheba's everything, um, but more likely because of where they were going. At the time, it was believed that the biblical kingdom of Sheba was somewhere around Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Um, which were both remote and dangerous places that few Westerners visited at the time. What made the expedition especially dangerous was that while Malro was searching for the lost cities of Sheba, King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia invaded Yemen, and the ensuing so- uh, Saudi-Yemeni uh, war greatly complicated their search. From what I can tell, he pretty much just uh, Malro pretty much just flew over the deserts in an airplane, hoping to find the ruins of an ancient city.
0: I mean, like, how else are you going to go about it? That's pretty much what
1: it sounds like. Um, just kind of fl- him and um, Molinier just kind of flew back and forth, pr- presumably in some sort of pattern, um, just looking for ruins. And then I I would assume that when they found them, they took a closer look.
0: My immediate thought whenever I think about someone flying looking for ruins is the scene from Avatar, The Last Airbender, where oh, no. the blind girl, Toph, after traveling <laughs> for a long time, looking for these ruins with a group of other people. Flying just in the air. Flying in the air. Just points in a random direction and goes, I think I see it. And everybody else goes, oh, where? And they're all looking. And then she's just like, I'm blind.
1: And like waves her hand back and forth in front of her face.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's probably the mic hit that you just heard. Yeah. <laughs> from me waving my hand, John Cena-esque in front yeah. of my
1: face. Now, did he come up with that before her? Or did she do that first?
0: Uh, she was actually a parody of John Cena.
1: That explains so
0: much. Yeah, just like uh, so the much. person that she's fighting against in the like WWE ring yes! that they have is named The Boulder. Yes, for The Rock, of the right? Rock. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: All right. I can't remember like when Avatar first came out, so I couldn't... My mental timeline is all messed up. Yeah. All right.
0: One last aside with that scene The (laughs) boulder is voiced by Mick Foley Who notoriously disliked The Rock
1: (laughs) Oh well then all right.
0: Sorry about that back to your traveling Over deserts looking for ruins
1: It's my turn Uh, So after weeks of this uh, This flight over deserts um, Malraux and Molinier returned to France And announced that the ruins Malraux had found Up on the mountains Um up in the mountains of Yemen, were in fact the capital of the Queen of Sheba. His claim was not supported by archaeologists, however, it did boost his fame and provided him with material for several of his next essays that he wrote. So, do you know anything about the Queen of Sheba? No. Well, in case anyone at home listening doesn't either, and for your edification... She was a biblical queen mentioned in the Old Testament uh, slash the Hebrew Bible. However, her existence has been heavily disputed by historians. The story goes that hearing of the wisdom and wealth of the Israelite king Solomon, she visited him at in Jerusalem bringing, quote, a great retinue with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones um, for a gift. There she found that his fame, great as it was, fell far f- short of the truth And after exchanging costly presents and proving him with hard questions, she returned to her own land, marveling at what she had seen and heard. So this tale has undergone extensive Jewish, Islamic, and Ethiopian elaborations, and it's become the subject of one of the most widespread and fertile cycles of legends in the Orient. So according to Titus Flavius Josephus, a first century Romano-Jewish historian, she was the queen of Egypt and Ethiopia, And she brought to Palestine the first specimens of the balsam, which grew in the Holy Land in his own time. In the Jewish tradition, the Queen of Sheba had Solomon answer her riddles, kind of like a sphinx, to test his wisdom. The first question was, what is a well of wood, a pail of iron which draws up stones and pours out water?
0: I'm not sure I understood the question.
1: What is a well of wood, a pail of iron which draws up stone and pours out water?
0: Yep, this is going right above my head. I have no idea what you're even asking me.
1: Well, the answer is a tube of cosmetic. Yeah, yep. Uh, I I mean, ancient riddles, dude. Yep. (laughs) So her next question was, what is that which comes from the earth as dust, the food of which is dust, which is poured out like water, and which looketh toward the house?
0: (laughs) I thought I was onto something until this dust started looking at houses.
1: (laughs) Um, Is it
0: looking to buy? Was it a good market?
1: (laughs) Maybe. The answer is naphtha. Do you know what that is? No. I had to Google it. I didn't either. It's a flammable oil containing various hydrocarbons contained by the dry distillation of organic substances like coal, shale, or petroleum.
0: Okay, that riddle made sense at least.
1: Yes, that one makes more sense, right? So her final question was...
0: Wait, hold on. Why does it look at a house? Uh, uh,
1: Heating? the flammable oil?
0: Maybe. I house. don't know. Next riddle.
1: I, you know, neither of them are alive to ask anymore, so I have no
0: idea. Are you sure about that?
1: <laughs> okay. Her last, her final question was, what is that which precedeth proceed, all like a general, which crieth loudly and bitterly, the head of which is like a reed, which is the glory of the rich and the shame of the poor, the glory of the dead and the shame of the living, the joy of the birds, and the sorrow of the
0: fishes. I am not a wise King Solomon.
1: (laughs) The answer apparently is flax.
0: (laughs) Okay, so it was really literal with the looks like a reed. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, crazy Queen Sheba.
1: Well, and I mean crazy King Solomon because he answered them all to her satisfaction apparently. So the Arabic tradition also tells of Solomon solving riddles and other proofs of his wisdom and contains, in general, most of the stories that are also found in the Jewish tradition. And a Christian legend claims that the Queen of Sheba brought Solomon the same gifts that the Magi would later give to Christ. So, some interesting like parallels there. Um, and support in different like religious traditions of the same kind of legend. So, it's interesting. To me, anyway. <laughs> so, virtually all modern scholars agree that Sheba was the South Arabian kingdom of Saba centered around the oasis of Marib um, in present-day Yemen. Sheba was quite well-known in the classical world, and its country was called Arabia Felix. Around the middle of the first millennium BC, there were Sabaeans, also in the Horn of Africa, in um, the area that later became the realm of Aksum, which I'm going to assume is not what it's called anymore. There are five places in the Bible where the writer distinguishes Sheba, i.e. the Yemenite S- uh, Sabaeans from Siba, um, meaning the African Sabaeans. Um, in Psalm 72.10, they're mentioned together, the kings of Sheba and Siba shall offer gifts. So the spelling dif- differentiation, however, might be purely fictitious. Um, the indigenous inscriptions make no such difference, and both Yemenite and African Sabaeans are, are, um, are spelt exactly the same way, like later. So it may be a difference, it might not be. Um, but some people have spent a lot of time delving into the difference of one letter. I can tell. <laughs> the alphabetic inscriptions from South Arabia furnish no evidence for women rulers. And additionally, the British Museum states that there is no archaeological evidence for such a queen. And Israel Finkelstein and Neil Asher Silberman, who are both archaeologists, write that the story of Solomon and Sheba is, quote, an anachronistic 7th century piece meant to legitimize the particip- participation of Judah in the lucrative Arabian trade. So okay, then. mostly like hype almost in a way meant to support other things, I guess.
0: Look how smart Solomon was.
1: Right, Exactly.
0: Some crazy queen came and started shouting <laughs> riddles at him, and he got them all.
1: Yep. Uh, so the Queen of Sheba, who remains nameless in the Hebrew and Christian Bibles, but is given the name uh, Makeda in Ethiopian Ethiopian, and Bilquis in Arabic traditions. So she may or may not have been a real person. Um, there's not a whole lot of evidence to support, honestly, either way, Um However, queens were well attested in Arabia, though not after 690 B.C., and Assyrian inscriptions repeatedly mention Arab queens in the north, a.k.a. where it, she would have been from. Um, Makida, or Mek- Mekuda, the personal name of the queen in Ethiopian legend, might be interpreted as a popular rendering of the title Mikwit, meaning high official, um, or it could be de- derived from ancient Egyptian mikit meaning protectress or housewife so it's really anyone's guess as to whether or not it was a title or someone's actual name and refer to an actual queen ah uh. yeah so the fullest and most significant version of the legend appears in the kebra Nagast or the glory of the kings which is the ethiopian national saga translated from arabic in 1322 And here, Menelik I is the child of Solomon and Makeda, a.k.a. the Queen of Sheba, from whom the Ethiopian dynasty claims descent to the present day. Based on the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the Queen of the South is claimed to be the Queen of Ethiopia in this one. And in those times, King Solomon sought merchants from all over the world in order to buy materials for the building of the temple. Among them was Tamarin, the great merchant of Queen Makeda of Ethiopia, Having returned to Ethiopia, Tamrin told the queen of the wonderful things he had seen in Jerusalem and of Solomon's wisdom and generosity, whereupon she decided to visit Solomon. She was warmly welcomed, given a palace for dwelling, and received great gifts every day. Also, can we just talk about the fact that Solomon had an extra palace to give her to live in while she visited?
0: Didn't Solomon have many cities, not just like a palace?
1: Yes, yes, he had many cities, like, yeah. There was a lot of stuff, but I'm just marveling at the fact that she was given her own palace for her visit.
0: (laughs) Quite a hotel stay. What an Airbnb.
1: Ooh, can we rent that one for our honeymoon? That would be great.
0: (laughs) I think it's a little far from Disney.
1: Mm, True. Unfortunately. So Solomon and Machida spoke with great wisdom, and instructed by him, she converted to Judaism. Before she left, there was a great feast in the king's palace. Machida stayed in the palace overnight. After Solomon had sworn that he would not do her any harm, while she swore in return that she would not steal from him, as the meals had been spicy, Makida awoke thirsty at night and went to drink some water. When Solomon appeared, reminding her of her oath, she answered, Ignore your oath, just let me drink water. I don't know how drinking water is, um... Theft! Theft, but whatever. Also, she told him to ignore his oath, basically meaning, you can do me harm, I guess?
0: I guess she really wanted uh, water that badly.
1: Apparently. Or
0: maybe she considered the meal being too spicy to be doing her harm.
1: Maybe that is so also. She can I mean, walk. that's how I feel most of the time. Yes, you do look like <laughs> a hurt
0: puppy whenever you eat something too
1: spicy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that same night, Solomon had a dream about the sun rising over Israel, but being mistreated and despised by the Jews. The sun moved to shine over Ethiopia and Rome, aka the Byzantine Empire. Solomon gave Makeda a ring as a token of faith, and then she left. On her way home, she gave birth to a son. Oh. Yep.
0: Wasn't just a ring he gave.
1: Nope. Well, remember at the very beginning of this little bit, I said Menelik first is a child of Solomon and Makeda.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, apparently, she named him Bina Lechem. I'm butchering that, I'm sure. Meaning son of the wise man, and that later became Menelik. So after the boy had grown into, um, had grown up in Ethiopia, he went to Jerusalem carrying the ring that had been given to Makeda by Solomon. And he was received with great honors. The king and the people tried in vain to persuade him to stay. Solomon gathered his nobles and announced that he would send his firstborn son to Ethiopia together with their firstborns. And he added that he was expecting a third son who would marry the king of Rome's daughter and reign over Rome so that the entire world would be ruled by David's descendants. I have absolutely no idea if that in any way, shape, or form has any accuracy whatsoever.
0: Are we currently ruled by David's descendants?
1: I have no idea.
0: (laughs) Has any culture actually ruled the entire world at any given time? Mm, No. I don't think so.
1: But I mean, at this given time, the, like, known world was significantly smaller than it is now. At least to them. So, like, their concept of ruling the whole world was significantly smaller than what we would consider it now.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: So, So, Menelik was anointed king by Zadok the high priest, and he then took the name David. The firstborn nobles who followed him are named, and even today some Ethiopian families claim their ancestry from them. So prior to leaving, the priest's sons had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. Oh. <laughs> After their leader, Azarius, had offered a sacrifice as commanded by one of God's angels. With much wailing, the procession left Jerusalem on a wind cart led and carried by the archangel, arch, angle, archangel. Arch
0: <laughs> the biggest angle.
1: <laughs> the archangel, Michael.
0: The most potent of angles. <laughs>
1: So, having arrived at the Red Sea, Azarius received to the, revealed to the people that the Ark was with them. David, a.k.a. Menelik, prayed to the Ark, and the people rejoiced, singing, dancing, blowing horns and flutes, and beating drums. The Ark showed its miraculous powers during the crossing of the stormy sea, and all arrived unscathed. When Solomon learned that the Ark had been stolen, he sent a horseman after the thieves, and even gave chase himself, but neither could catch them. Solomon then returned to Jerusalem and gave orders to the priest to remain silent about the theft and to place a copy of the Ark in the temple so that the foreign nations could not say that Israel had lost its fame. Hmm. And so this is how I'm assuming Indiana Jones finds the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, true. (laughs) That is where my assumption is going. (laughs) So yeah, so Solomon got a kid on the Queen of Sheba. The kid then came back. Basically was like, hi, I'm your son, crown me king, and then stole the ark and left is pretty much what I got from that.
0: Sounds about right.
1: <laughs> what a crazy family. And I thought your family was nuts.
0: Oh, I'm about to tell <laughs> you about crazy families in my topic soon.
1: Oh good. Alrighty then. I'm gonna wrap this up. So there's a lot more information on the different religious legends of the Queen of Sheba with lots of different opinions on whether she was real and her supposed role in history. So if you're interested in finding out more, there are several books out there, all with varying degrees of historical research versus fiction. Personally, the book Sheba through the desert in search of the legendary queen by Nicholas Clapp seems to be a good combination of um, research and lore. And it details his archaeological expedition to find the truth. There's also um a couple of books by those uh the archeologists i mentioned earlier um israel like finkelberg or something like that is one that i remember particularly wrote a book
0: finkelberg
1: oh okay
0: what no fairly odd parents references for you
1: oh i didn't get it but
0: it's dinkelberg in the fairly odd oh, Parents. oh
1: that might be why i didn't get yeah. it <laughs> So beyond Melro and Molinier's expedition, there have been several other efforts to find evidence of the Queen of Sheba in both the archaeological and historical records. The ancient Sabaic Awam Temple, known in folklore as Maram Bilquis, or the Sanctuary of Bilquis, and Bilquis was one of the Queen of Sheba's supposed names. Uh, the temple was excavated by archaeologists in 1951-52 by the American Foundation for the Study of Man, led by Wendell Phillips, They cleared the entrance court almost completely and made numerous discoveries, including elaborate bronze statues and the usage of the southern entrance entrance in the elliptic elliptic wall for abolition rituals. When you like clean yourself. I don't know how to say that word, but
0: (laughs) I've never heard of what you're talking about.
1: All right. Well, bathing rituals. We're going to go with that. There we go. Before entering the cellar. Um, but no trace of the Queen of Sheba has been discovered so far in the many inscriptions that were found down there. And it's supposedly her temple, so or her sanctuary. In 1999, British scientists from Bournemouth University, working with archaeologist Dr. Patrick Darling, unearthed a pos- possible burial site for the Queen of Sheba in Nigeria. Now for you geography-minded folks out there, Ethiopia and Nigeria are pretty far apart which would make it extremely difficult for the supposed people to be the same. But that's the claim. Yep. <laughs> so the boundaries of this expedition are believed to be the se- uh, the boundary of the original Ijubi kingdom, ruled by the... Ooh. Awujale. 500-year-old Portuguese documents hint at the power of an Ijibu kingdom and build the case for Sheba being on the other side of the continent. AKA, not in like Saudi Arabia, Yemen, um, Ethiopia. Darling said local people around the Eridu ma- monuments link the area to the Bilikisu Sungbo and another name for Sheba. And local tradition speaks of a great queen building a vast monument of remembrance, and there's a yearly pilgrimage to what's believed to be her grave. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the region's long history of gold and ivory trade and the cultural importance of eunuchs linked to royal households further support the Sheba link. And Darling added that the local people believe it, and that's what's important. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims come to this area every year to honor what could be her grave, a magical shrine grove under tall trees. So possibilities abound, and I feel like that may be part of why this legend has been so difficult to kind of nail down and admittedly, the source for this was the Nigerian news. So who really knows? Yeah. <laughs> Could be a little biased. So another more recent discovery is that of the potential gold mine of the Queen of Sheba. Remember, she brought Solomon lots of lots of gold and jewels. Yep. And I mean an actual gold mine, like mine of gold. <laughs> In 2012, a British archaeology team headed by Lu- um, Luis Schofield, an archaeologist and former British Museum curator, struck gold. Hardy, hard, hard. Ha,
0: ha. You're so funny.
1: <laughs> um, on the high Geralta plateau in northern e- Ethiopia. So again, Ethiopia this time. Um, an initial clue lay in a 20 foot stone um, slab carved with a sun and crescent moon, which was the carling- calling card of the land of Sheba. And Schofield said, I crawled beneath the stone, wary of a nine foot cobra, I was warned lived there and came face to face with an inscription in Sabaean, the language that the Queen of Sheba would have spoken. Although local people still pan for gold in the river, they were unaware of the ancient mine, like just yards away. (laughs) Its shaft is buried some four feet down in a hill above um, which vultures swoop. An ancient human skull is embedded in the entrance shaft, which bears Sibian chiseling. So they put a skull in there and then wrote on it. Oh. Yeah. So tests by a gold prospector who alerted Schofield to the mine show that it is extensive with a proper shaft and big um, tunnels big enough to walk along. So, like, it was a functioning mine at some point in time. And, like, it's really old because it has all the Sibian writing in it. Um, the article says that a full excavation of the site would begin as soon as Schofield um, secured the necessary funding, but I haven't seen any further information on it. Um, so I guess I'll keep my ears peeled and if I ever find more, I'll do an update. Oh, okay. (laughs) So that's the Queen of Sheba, the actual queen or figment of someone's imagination. Maybe someday we'll find out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So apologies if you just heard incessant squeaking that entire time our puppy was throwing a fit. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Hey, bud. Can you lay down, buddy?
0: All right. So my topic is from February 17th of 1936, and it is the world's first superhero makes his first appearance in comics. Ooh. So despite what comics historians say, uh, who do you think that they think is the first superhero?
1: I feel like my answer is going to be Superman, and I feel like that's really far off base. (laughs) Yeah, it's not
0: Superman, but it's not far off base. Oh, good. So Superman was released two years after our Topics hero, Phantom. Okay. Yeah, I saw that first and I was like, oh, is that a villain, not a hero? <laughs> Phantom seems like a very villain name.
1: Yes, it does.
0: So not a superheroic sounding name and it kind of sounds creepy, but I assure you that Phantom, is, who is also known as the ghost who walks, is a good guy.
1: I mean, the Ghost Who Walks make it sound even more like a villain.
0: <laughs> yeah, it really does. And he gets another nickname that I'll mention later where it's still just sounds like a villain. Fair enough. So why do people generally agree that Superman was first? Because Superman was the first to, be, to put the super into heroics. Phantom didn't have any powers. And we'll talk more about who Phantom was in just a second. But I would argue that there are plenty of superheroes these days who also lack powers. Like the entirety of the bat family and yep. arguably the most famous superhero of recent time iron man so yeah. maybe it's time to solidify phantom as the origin of superhero comics
1: all right i'll buy
0: it and uh just from more reading down below i kind of think that a good portion of the world does view him as the origin okay and maybe it's just the us who doesn't ah uh. Which is weird because he was, I'm pretty sure he was a U.S. comic.
1: Huh. Interesting.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I think superhero Superman may have just uh, pushed Over- him out.
1: L- overshadowed a little bit.
0: Uh, at least here. Yeah. So what did Phantom have? T- tight spandex bodysuit. Oh. Check. <laughs> First use of a domino mask with whited out eyes. Check. Huh. Trademark weapons and gadgets, guns that were always period appropriate to the date of release, homing pigeons, and his phantom rings of good and evil.
1: Interesting. I like the homing pigeons. That's a fun touch. Uh, The rings I'm less sure about. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get more into those. If he's a good guy, why does he have a ring of good and evil?
0: We'll talk about that. All right. He had a secret lair called the Skull Cave. That sounds about right. Yep. And he had a secret identity. And he had two nemeses the Sang Brotherhood, made up of traditional greedy par- pirates. Fun. And the Sky Band, a group of all-female pirates whose business was mostly human sacrifice and drug trafficking.
1: Okay. Yep. <laughs> All right. <laughs>
0: kind of went did from it... zero to 100 with pirates there. Yeah, that's a lot
1: of pirates.
0: So, And like every hero worth their salt, he had an origin story. So sometime in the 1500s, a British merchant ship helmed by Sir Christopher Standish was raided by pirates killing all but Sir Standish's son Kit Walker who washed up on an unspecified shore with a lush jungle surroundings the area would later become known as the fictional african country of Bengalia kit was taken in and cared for by a local tribe and as he grew up and becomes became stronger he vowed to destroy all piracy greed and cruelty and accustomed to tribe's tradition wow <clears throat> and accustomed to the tribe's traditions Created a persona based on a native idol designed to strike fear into the hearts of his enemies. A quick note on that suit that he made the creator of the Phantom, Lee Falk, had intended for the suit to be gray so that he could also have the alias of the Gray Ghost. So there's another kind of evil sounding superhero Ooh.
1: name. Yeah, it, yeah, I'm getting a vibe of like evil superheroes.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because he looks ridiculous and definitely looks like he would be a hero rather than a villain, but he does it. It's so strange. Anyway, definitely
1: need to see a picture of this dude now.
0: It's full head to toe purple spandex.
1: Jeez, it sounds like your dream, honestly.
0: (laughs) So when it was first published in color in 1939, the printer colored the suit purple instead of gray. Oops. So despite the color being purple, Falk would continue to call the suit gray until 1960. Oh, boy. Even though it was purple on the page <laughs> that you were looking at. When it was finally written that the color purple came from the idol that they based the suit off of as well, and the suit was colored with native berries that dyed it purple. So eventually they wrote in a,
1: a reason catch for as to why yeah. it being purple.
0: <laughs> so the suit was always gray, but it was dyed purple. So speaking of this idol that keeps getting <laughs> mentioned, I'm not sure how head-to-toe purple spandex man with diagonally striped underwear would ever look like a tribal idol of africa
1: <laughs> oh no
0: i also found it a little odd that the skull that was on phantom's belt was very very similar to the punisher's logo
1: oh which is a future
0: superhero that well, is that anti-hero. is a lot
1: of purple spandex
0: yeah it's a lot of purple spandex also
1: what's with the striped underwear
0: yeah <laughs> So other than All the skull right. on his belt, he also had a skull on his ring. The phantom mark of evil was worn on the phantom's right hand, and he would punch his enemies with it, forever branding them with as an enemy of the phantom. So that's why he had the ring. The so, mark of evil would mark people as his enemy.
1: He punched them so hard, the ring left a giant imprint. Yep. Permanently. Yep. I like it.
0: So according to the phantom men which is a Swedish magazine that were huge fans of the Phantom, and they were such big fans that they published their own Phantom comics. This ring was given to the first Phantom by Paracelsus, which is weird, as heck, because why would the Phantom have any reason to interact with a Swiss philosopher, astrologer, and alchemist? Unknown. Not only that, this ring was apparently first owned by Roman Emperor Nero. Oh, fun. (laughs) And it was actually made of the melted down nails of Jesus's cross.
1: Does it make the wearer good at fiddling? What? Because Nero fiddled while Rome burned.
0: Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be funny.
0: <laughs> I I was too dumb to recognize it.
1: <laughs> also, why would they assume Jesus was nailed to the cross with gold nails?
0: I never said the ring was gold.
1: Oh, okay. Fair point.
0: Yeah, just a ring.
1: Yep, just a ring. I think I assumed it was gold.
0: <laughs> Obviously.
1: <laughs> well.
0: So notice how I mentioned the first phantom, and in your oh, yours topic, I said that there was a crazy family. Ooh. So the last part of the oath that the first phantom swore against pirates also included a line about how this vengeance would be never ending, as he would teach all of his sons to carry out the vengeance as well. Fun! So this helped keep rumors of the Phantom being a ghost alive, as the Phantom has been around in the same form for over 400 years. Currently, we are on the 21st Phantom in the comics, and even that's a little convoluted, because the 22nd Phantom existed in a 1996 movie also titled The Phantom, and the Phantoms have a fun naming convention. They're all named Kit Walker. Jesus. (laughs) So this guy named... His son and his son named his son and his son named his son, all Kit Walker.
1: Do they like put like the first, the second, the third, or junior or anything? Or is it just Kit Walker?
0: So we'll get there in like (laughs) two sentences. So they even retconned the Phantom's father, the aforementioned Christopher Standish, to either be called Kit Standish, Kittredge Standish, or plain old Kit Walker. Jeez. They just decided, nope, that was also Kit Walker. So, oddly, the 22nd Phantom, the one that was in the movie in 1996, is the only one named Junior. All righty. So, all of them are just known as Kit Walker, except for the 22nd Phantom, who is Kit Walker Junior.
1: Wow. I bet their family reunions get real confusing.
0: Well, I don't think anyone becomes another Phantom until their dad dies.
1: Oh. All righty. Yep. Yep. So, like, they just become their father, essentially, every time. It's like, well, I am now the, like, Kit Walker, the phantom, the instead ghost of... ghost who walks. Yeah. That's a little morbid, but all right. Yep. <laughs> I am the ghost of my father, and I am walking.
0: <laughs> yep. So, there was also a Phantom 2040 that let us know that there will eventually be 31 phantoms. Oh, good. And also, none of them are named Junior either. <sighs> but there is... One of them that is not named Kit Walker, and that is the 28th Phantom, who is Jetta Walker, the only child of her father and the only female Phantom that didn't have a brother named Kit. All right. So there is one non-Kit Walker.
1: Honestly, I'm kind of surprised they didn't just name her Kit anyway.
0: It It's definitely <laughs> a gender neutral name. <laughs> so that's a lot of family history. And did I forget to mention that this lineage of British merchants from 1500 that were raised in a jungle in africa all believed that they were american wait
1: a second
0: yep apparently all of the children portray themselves as american
1: but uh, but uh, america didn't exist
0: in the 1500s Yeah. yeah yeah that was like right around the time that christopher columbus discovered uh Quote, unquote, the Americas.
1: <laughs> Discover. Yeah. With lots of air quotes.
0: So there is no way that <laughs> this family is even remotely American.
1: No. <laughs> I think even at one
0: point they end up, I, I forget which one, but there there was a phantom that they decided to make a cowboy just to make the, this stick to, a little bit better. To feel more American. So f- for some reason... A cowboy phantom, or one of the phantoms, decided to leave Africa, the place where they're destined to protect, to go to the U.S. to be a cowboy for a few years and then come back and now they're all American.
1: I'm so confused.
0: Crazy family, I told you. Also,
1: what is more American, apparently, than a cowboy? Yeah. It's as American as you can get.
0: So we're going to jump back a second because I also forgot to mention that by the sixth phantom, the hero gained a new tool for crime fighting, and that was the phantom mark of good that I mentioned earlier.
1: (laughs) Wait, so he didn't get the good and the evil one at the same time?
0: No, he just had the evil (laughs) one until there were six generations of phantom. (laughs) All right. And they they had started something called the Jungle League at that oh point boy. to help protect the jungle, and that allowed some of the some of the children of the Phantom to practice being the Phantom before they were the Phantom.
1: I was going to say it seems like a hard job to just be like, your dad's the Phantom, then all of a sudden you're the Phantom. No preparation.
0: Yeah, the funny thing is, is the only difference between the Phantom costumes when you weren't the Phantom is that your suit wasn't purple.
1: Oh. Was it actually gray like it was supposed to be?
0: It was just a different variant color. Oh. <laughs> so you weren't the real Phantom unless your suit was purple. Fair enough. So the Phantom wore this ring on their left hand because it is the hand closest to the heart. Its symbol is four saber its symbol is four sabers touching at the tips in like a plus sign so hence the small detail in old comics and because it was supposed to fit on a ring the detail of the sabers and just the symbol forevermore was reduced to looking like a few peas so (laughs) with the bottom of the pea touching in the center of the circular ring and the peas being located at um three six nine and twelve o'clock so if you imagine this for a second it doesn't look all that off from a swastika (laughs)
1: Oh no. <laughs>
0: that never got brought up anywhere, but I that's just something that I saw as every time I saw the picture of the ring and I'm like it's so close to being a swastika.
1: Awkward.
0: <laughs> so let's forget that because it's not it's <laughs> literally not mentioned anywhere. It's just what I saw when I saw it. It is the mark of good after all. Aye. All right. So another strange thing about how the mark of evil was placed on enemies of the phantom was It was done by punching. So in Mythbusters Season 5, which aired in 2007, the Mythbusters tested superhero myths. And one of the which that they tested, you guessed it, which was how the Phantom got his evil mark to stay on people. Oh, boy. So the force that they would need to hit the human with would be enough to break a skull to leave a permanent mark. Oh, my. And let's hope that the Phantom isn't punching people with the mark of good like that. Why? I mean, here, you're good, and then punches them oh. hard <laughs> enough to break their skull.
1: Fair point.
0: <laughs> so we actually do, need, we do know that he didn't need to punch people that hard. I'm not, I didn't see the Mythbusters episode, so maybe they didn't bring it up or did, I don't know. But in one of the comics, it's revealed that the rings of the Phantom were actually extremely sharp, and always had a permanent ink coating on it made from the plants found in the, fo- the fake country of Bengalia. So effectively, the phantom was handing out justice in the form of instant tattoos. <laughs>
1: I like it. Yeah. That's my kind of justice. You're bad. Tattoo. Instant tattoo that labels you bad.
0: Yep. Luckily for our recipients of the mark of good, it actually didn't involve punching or instant tattoos at all. You know, luckily, unless you're into (laughs) both of those things, then sorry. (laughs) So the Phantom would nearly only hand out the mark of good to people that saved his life. And it was in the form of a necklace with the symbol.
1: Oh, that's nice. I like that version. (laughs) So
0: if you wore the necklace, people knew that you were protected by the Phantom.
1: That's nice. I like that.
0: So did the popularity of our hero fare through history? Well, I already mentioned that in Scandinavia, they had a group called the Phantom Men that made their own comics. The Phantom Men's latest work is scheduled for release of March 5th of this year, and they have already released nine comics since the start of the new year.
1: Oh, wow. So
0: Phantom is actually still very popular.
1: Yeah, apparently. They've been busy. Uh,
0: And even in Stockholm until 2010, they even had a Phantom theme park. (gasps) That's cool. Yeah. So I I wasn't expecting to see that at all because, again, Phantom isn't popular here. Right. So in Australia, a similar group has Phantom comics that are published in over 500 papers to this day as well. Wow. And as recently as 2010, there was also a television series for the Phantom that aired on the Sci-Fi Channel. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. The Phantom has been parodied by Paul Hogan, the guy who played Crocodile Dundee. Nice. Catherine Zeta-Jones starred in the Phantom movie in 1996.
1: All right, quick Googling of this Phantom movie. Yep.
0: Uh, The Adult Swim cartoon Venture Brothers had a parody character called the Phantom Limb that was exactly (laughs) the same as the Phantom, except he was just a floating torso. Okay. (laughs) Get it? Phantom limbs? No limbs?
1: Yep, no limbs, just a floating torso.
0: And Robot Chicken, another Adult Swim show that was a stop-motion sketch comedy, has also cast the Phantom previously, and the character was voiced by Frank Welker. (laughs) <laughs> who, if you don't know, is the voice of Fred and Scooby from Scooby-Doo, along with a lot of other things that I looked up. And I, the one that stood out the most is Frank Welker is the voice of Dragon from Shrek.
1: Oh. <laughs> Isn't that wild? Oh, that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah. Or Eddie Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Frank, Frank Welker does a lot. Maybe we'll try and do an sh- episode on him at some point because... I was astounded by the number of voices that that man has done. He
1: does an insane amount of voices. Also, Billy Zane played the Phantom yes, in movie. Yes, Billy Zane was the
0: Phantom. Yep, I forgot about that.
1: Dear God. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Supposedly, the fans really liked the Phantom movie. It was like super true to the feel of the comics, which is hilarious because the few seconds that I watched of a few different clips of the Phantom movie were really... Really cheesy, and I, I thought it was super funny, but these are there are a lot of people who really like Phantom.
1: All righty,
0: and specifically like in Australia and you know Scandinavian countries, he's just as popular, if not more popular, than like Superman and Batman wow. and Iron Man and Spider Man.
1: The girl who plays Diana Palmer, I don't know who that is. I'm assuming it's the love interest. Was also the girl who played Buffy in the Buffy the Vampire the Slayer movie. movie. Yeah, yep. wow, this is wild. Yeah,
0: <laughs> so Phantom's really popular.
1: Jeez, all right, we are gonna have to like watch the movie or something because now I'm super curious. Yeah, I feel
0: like we've been really missing out on something.
1: Right, I need to. Lo- I need to like look at these comics. I think because this sounds very entertaining.
0: Yeah, so that's the story of Phantom, at least a small portion of it. I
1: like it. <laughs> yeah.
0: Maybe we'll learn more about it now, because I had no idea that this guy even existed.
1: Yeah, this is nuts. I'd never heard of it before.
0: Voiced by Frank Welker. Yeah. So now it's time for our call to action. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can visit our website at halfwit-history.com. We have a ko-fi if you'd like to send us a little bit of change for our time.
1: <laughs> send us a coffee. Alms for the poor. <laughs> yeah. Oodle-olly, oodle today. golly, what <laughs> We'll
0: do Robin Hood sometime, too. Ooh, yes. Uh, you can find us on Ko-Fi at ko-fi.com forward slash History.
1: Yes. And
0: you can always send us an email at halfwitpod at gmail.com.
1: We really appreciate any feedback, comments, anything of that sort because um we're always trying to get better so anything you might have to throw our way that would be great um or if you have any possible topics or general ideas for topics like you want to hear more about pirates sorry that was the first thing that came to mind or kylie
0: does pirates all the time and i brought up pirates again i've only
1: done pirates once (laughs) but i'd like to do more so request pirates um Yeah, so if you have anything like that, shoot it our way and we'll see what we can do. Um, We'll do all the hard work, so. I won't. (laughs) I will. (laughs) Specifically send them to me.
0: (laughs) Also, thank you to the fishermen for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find a link to their SoundCloud in our episode descriptions. Go check them out. Yeah. Okay, are we on to fun facts?
1: Yes.
0: I only have one, so I'm going to take it from you.
1: You should do that. (laughs)
0: so february 22nd of 1989 uk physicist stephen hawking calls the proposed missile defense system known as star wars deliberate fraud (laughs) figured i would go with the kind of nerd thing going from comics to star wars so i looked into it a little bit because i'm like what in the world is this (laughs) it was actually known as the strategic defense initiative it was a Not really a branch of the government, but an initiative of the government that just had like a big shield in space with some stars on it. Uh It was started by Ronald Reagan and it was ended in 1993 by Bill Clinton, but it wasn't actually ended by Bill Clinton. He just renamed it and kept the program going. Oh. (laughs) And the Star Wars thing was nicknamed by Ted Kennedy, the senator of Massachusetts. Yeah. All right. So he, he thought it was... So ridiculous that he was like, "I'm just going to call this Star Wars."
1: Okay. And apparently,
0: Stephen Hawking agreed with him. All it was right. ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, they were trying to make like phase cannons and oh, like all this like sci-fi tech and have it up in space so that they could combat missiles from space. Good luck. Yep, with, <laughs> with phase beams and stuff.
1: Oh boy! All right, I guess on the train of the ridiculousness. On February 19th, 1914, four-year-old Charlotte Mary Peterstorff was mailed by train from Grangeville, Idaho, to her grandparents' house 73 miles away.
0: Oh, I've heard about people doing this. In the
1: most famous Child in the Post instance.
0: Yeah, that's really far.
1: Yep. It's a, it's a trek that's a long time to be I'm assuming not in a box. I am assuming it went along with the anything you can put a stamp on. And they put a stamp on her and sent her on her way. I'm really hoping someone fed her.
0: Yeah, I mean, I saw I saw pictures from when people were doing that and the mailmen were literally just carrying the babies in their bags.
1: Yeah, there's a reason it's not allowed anymore.
0: Yeah, but, <laughs> I mean, especially because, you know, the mailmen were forced to make sure that the livelihood of this child was okay.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, that's a lot of... That is not in their job description. Not at <laughs> all. So, yeah.
0: Well, anyways, we hope you enjoyed listening because we sure as heck enjoyed recording. As always, I've been your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you come back next week. Bye.
1: you don't